0: Welcome to 2020 Visions with Biz and Reese, a series that takes the long view, looking at politics, society and culture in the UK over the next decade. Over the next six weeks, we'll explore potential pathways for key areas of British life, work, welfare, culture in the media, politics and identity. Contributing to the shows will be leading voices from across civil society, thinkers, journalists, MPs and activists. We're not predicting the future, merely projecting it. This week's show concerns politics, and we'll be looking at the state of political parties, the future of big political ideas, and the role of direct action in achieving social change. We have contributions from Labour MP John Cruddus, human rights activist Peter Tatchell, Conservative Home Editor Jonathan Isabe, sophologist Professor John Curtis, Dr Madsen Piri, Director of the Free Market Adam Smith Institute, Lib Dem Voice founder Stephen Tall, David Babs of the campaign organisation 38 Degrees and the new statesman's Laurie Penny. So here are some soundings on 21st century politics. Politics has a fantastic knack of weathering a crisis. The last 10 years have seen constitutional security and economic crises that the public was told meant that politics would never be the same again. And yet parliamentary processes seem to have carried on by and large as normal. In part because of these individual narratives, we've been distracted from a broader issue of a crisis in mainstream party support. In 1950, nearly 90% of voters voted Labour or Conservative. 60 years on, it's less than two-thirds, and there's a massive constituency of non-voters, over a third of the electorate. Political observers must admit it's strange when the new and apparently popular Prime Minister receives less votes than Ted Heath's disastrous February 1974 campaign and Neil Kinnock in 1992. This crisis of mainstream support can't continue to be ignored. The voting trend simply cannot continue without a fundamental realignment in party politics. I believe that this may be the single issue which will need to be addressed by those interested in politics, both inside and outside Parliament, over the coming decade.
1: So, here's Reese's antithesis. I don't think it's an important question at all. In fact, I think political parties are already dead. What we're exploring is, I guess, symptoms of a struggling system, of some sort of parliamentary crisis. Political parties exist as zombies already. They're irrelevant categorical descriptors that simply continue to exist in our minds because people pour thought and energy onto them. For want of any other way of conceiving politics or of doing politics, We keep using these walking dead categories. In that sense, party conference is a bit like Weekend at Bernie's for me. You've got all of these politicians and activists just keeping this walking dead thing alive. But what's really troubling is for these zombies, I guess, to retain some sort of semblance of power to rule, we now have some sort of unholy alliance of a coalition in the UK. People are straying from two-party politics as they smell the death unable to bear the infinite weight of Bernie any longer, we've turned to an era of coalitions. We spoke to Professor John Curtis of Strathclyde University to give us some historical background to party politics in the UK.
2: There are quite clear and important patterns for all three of Britain's main political parties over the last four elections or so. Uh, the first is undoubtedly the very marked decline in Labour support over this period. Labour came into power in 1997 with around 44% of the vote. It left it in 2010 with just under 30% of the vote. That actually is the biggest drop between first being elected and eventually losing office that any Labour government has ever suffered. And in fact, is even bigger than the 13-point drop or so that the Conservatives suffer between first being elected in 1979 and eventually being turfed out of office in 1997. So I think there is no doubt the scale of Labour's losses from the high point of Tony Blair's first victory in 1997 is, is a very marked and notable trend. Uh, the second is that, in contrast to that, is the relatively minimal scale of the um, Conservative recovery. The Conservatives, of course lost badly in 1997, though they still got over 30% of the vote, um, and in that respect at least they never fell to as low a level as Labour did in their worst year of 1983. But uh, even now, at the point of victory, the Conservatives have only managed around 37% of the vote, relatively small increase given the uh, poor result back in uh, 1997. Uh, in fact, if you look through the record books, the Conservatives have never previously managed to get into power either on their own or with somebody else on so a low a share of the uh, overall vote in Great Britain. So the Conservative uh, advance in recent elections has in truth been mostly modest. Meanwhile, the third thing that's true is is that um, although the Liberal Democrat vote in 2010 was disappointing for them as compared with the expectation, expectations that have been generated by the opinion polls, um, it was, in truth, the fourth election in a row in which their share of the vote had increased. Um, and in, indeed, we've, perhaps even more importantly, uh, over recent elections, uh, although the, the electoral system works against the Liberal Democrats, it hasn't been doing so as much as it done in the past. We've now getting uh, elections where Liberal Democrats get 50, 60 seats. Uh, if you go back before 1997, they never managed to get much more than two dozens. Now there is a not insubstantial Liberal Democrat representation in the House of Commons, and if you put it together with the other uh, smaller parties, including those from Northern Ireland, we're now getting 80, 90 MPs uh, from the smaller parties. And the contrast between that and the position in the 1950s and 1960s is very stark indeed. The fact that we ended up with a hung Parliament and therefore at least ended up with the possibility of a coalition, albeit we weren't necessarily expecting it to be, to be a coalition between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, does reflect long-term changes in British voting behaviour and British voting geography. I mean, the the first-past-the-post electoral system is no longer as effective as it once was in ensuring that one party gets an overall majority. It's partly because we do now have consistently more third-party MPs. There aren't as many seats that are marginal between Labour and the Conservatives as there were once, so therefore changes of votes between Conservative and Labour doesn't result in the same degree of turnover of seats the all Democrats extracted from the Conservatives a concession of holding a referendum on the alternative vote. The fact that we have a coalition, that we've ended up with a coalition even without a change of an electoral system is in fact an indication that first-past-the-post doesn't work in the way that it did in the past and that even if there weren't to be any further changes to the electoral system in the future we will probably end up once again getting a hung parliament, not necessarily in every election, certainly not, probably more than uh, occasional occurrences. Certainly, um, we could anticipate that if the alternative vote goes through, the Liberal Democrats will find it somewhat easier to win seats. And as a result of that, with more third-party MPs, and particularly more uh, Liberal Democrat MPs, hung parliaments become more likely than they once were.
0: So what are the views from within the parties themselves? We spoke to the leading grassroots spokespeople from the three largest parties, Labour MP John Crudus, Conservative Home Editor Jonathan Isabe and Lib Dem voice founder Stephen Tall. John Cruddis seems less than optimistic about the party's future if it carries on its current trajectory. Following the general election, what state is the Labour Party in?
3: Well, if you listen to a lot of people in the Labour Party, they would uh, tell you they're in a very good state in that they've um, got 258 MPs that you didn't see an outright Conservative victory, that this coalition is weak and unstable, that if we just hold our nerve, you know, we uh, pander some uh, elements of the electorate by cracking down on immigrants and welfare recipients, then we were in good shape to get over the line again very quickly. Now, to me, that's totally wrong. And um, in contrast to that view, I would suggest that Labour's just suffered its worst election defeat since 1931. We got only 29% of the vote. There is a fundamental rupture between Labour and huge swathes of its traditional support. And there's a real crisis of identity and philosophy for Labour because people literally do not know what it stands for. So you pay your money, you take your choice. I'm on the negative side, well, I'm afraid, in terms of the scale of the challenge that confronts Labour.
0: If the coalition successfully governs for a full term and as some commentators have suggested may run for the 2015 election on a joint slate, what for the future of the Labour Party?
3: Well, I mean, my sense of this coalition is that it's uh, a substantial political realignment. I would say historically, a profound period of economic and social change, that throws up major political realignments. It did in 1931. Um, the national government following the crisis of 1929 it did in the early 80s following the major economic transformations of the late 1970s with the birth of the sdp and the like and uh, what we've seen now in 2010 is the first center-right realignment coming out of the economic crisis of 2008 what we haven't seen is any equivalent realignment across the center left Um, now i think what Will be the case in this coalition is that there'll be more that keeps them together than breaks them apart it'll be both of their interests to hang on and be in it for the long haul i think they'll think if they take the economic pain in the short term in the medium term growth can restore um, and they'll be in a more benign economic setting and i think if they reduce the number of constituencies down to 600 if they um, introduce new form of electoral reform with the additional vote system then you could, in effect, have a coalition being proposed to the electorate in terms of vote one, vote two, you know, in terms of the choices made, like almost they do in Australia with preference voting. And I think they think they could be in a very strong position for the next election. Now, the question for us is whether we get ahead of the curve and acknowledge that that's a real threat for us Or we just think if we just steady as she goes and we could be in power again. And that gets back to the first question about how fundamental we think the crisis affecting Labour is. And I think it's a substantial crisis that we um, have in our midst. And I think it's, you know, if you look at the whole history of Labour over 110 years, you can detect three major crises, 1931, 1980 and now. And, uh, And I don't think we've really begun to come to terms with what's at stake here because the consequence of this major mayor realignment is that we could be out of power for a very long
1: time. Meanwhile, co-editor of Conservative Home and former Telegraph journalist Jonathan Isabee is more optimistic about the future of the Conservatives.
4: The Conservative Party is in a pretty bullish state. I mean, clearly, the Tory party is back in government for the first time in 13 years. After what was a pretty difficult time in the wilderness, if you like, I mean, we, we had less than 200 seats for... You know, all that time, and and that that was a a difficult mountain to climb. And I mean, in one sense, for David Cameron to f- just be 20 seats short of a majority, having started off with fewer than 200, is quite an achievement. That said, we're obviously very disappointed not to have an overall majority, and that you know we had to end up doing the deal with the Liberal Democrats in order to ensure that we were back in government.
0: Can you see the coalition successfully governing over the next five years and beyond?
4: Well, I mean, the the foundations are in the agreement that David Cameron made with Nick Clegg and the, between the two parties, effectively, for the five-year term. I, th- I think the early years will be relatively easy because, obviously, what's set out in the agreement is set out and those are the things that the coalition government will want to do. I think it will get more difficult towards the end of this five-year term as it will be because you know once you've implemented things in the agreement then how do you agree for the next set of policies to implement and indeed you know how does a coalition government react to events it's all very well setting out in the agreement all the things that you want to do but you know how do you react to say some kind of foreign policy issue that comes up uh, might be far more t- testing and trying for coalitions.
0: Um, there has been talk uh, by a number of commentators, most notably Michael Portillo recently, that a formal coalition could be made going into the next election. Can you foresee
4: this? Uh, it's difficult to take a view, not least because we don't know what electoral system the next election is going to be fought under. I think if it's fought under a first-past-the-post system, as I hope it will be, then there's absolutely no reason why the Conservative Party can't fight for an overall majority on its own. Whether that will be so easy, if there's, uh, if there's an AV system in place, uh, who, who's to know? It, it, it's kind of very, very early days in that respect. I don't think either party would accept any kind of full merger. Uh, there is a question as to whether the parties will do deals in certain seats in order to help each other but of course once you do start doing that you're effectively saying we want to continue working together after the election and my personal view is that i would hope the conservative party will be able to form a government in its own right after the next election
1: stephen tall of lib dem voice sees a more transformative capacity for his party
4: i think it's uh,
5: it's still very early days i think for the coalition we're talking uh, about three months after it was And I think everyone, whether in the media or in politics, is still a little bit um, shell-shocked, I think, by uh, all that happened and how quickly it happened. And I think it's going to be at least a year before we know uh, what exactly the longer-term impact of what's happened in the election and the coalition agreement is going to be. uh, In the immediate um, aftermath, it's clear that Lib Dems are suffering from a drop in support and uh, people are... A uh, kind of splitting into both either pro-government, in which case they seem to be backing the Conservatives, or anti-government, in which case they're going with Labour, and that is squeezing out the Lib Dem vote. Now, what we've got to see, of course, is whether or not over the next year, as the bite uh, of uh, the austerity budget takes place, whether or not that's going to further decrease Lib Dem support, but it could then bounce back. Or whether or not we're going to see the Lib Dems starting to get some credit for some of the more moderate uh, and small-l liberal policies that the coalition government is being responsible for. Clearly, as a Lib Dem, I'm hoping it's the latter, and that people are going to start seeing the Lib Dems as a moderating influence on the Conservative uh, Party, and a party that's actually putting forward progressive small-l liberal policies, which are attractive to a wide range of the population.
0: Can you see the Lib Dems maybe fighting a future election on a joint platform with the Tories?
5: No. No, I can't. Um, I think uh, and there have been various suggestions about recently that it could be the equivalent of a coupon election whereby Conservatives uh, don't fight certain lib Dem seats uh, in order to give the party a helping hand if we're still suffering from the drop in the polls. But I can't really see that um, being attractive. Uh, a couple of reasons. First of all, of course, if the uh, alternative vote referendum were to be successful, then there's no advantage whatsoever for the Liberal Democrats in having that kind of pact. Voters will make up their own minds whether or not they want to put the Lib Dems first and the Conservative second or Labour second, and uh, I'm sure they'd do so. Um, the second reason, of course, is that uh, a lot of the Lib Dem vote um, is on a is centre-left vote, and people who are reasonably, um, don't mind whether they vote Labour or Liberal Democrat, they're um, basically anti-Conservative. And uh, lots of Lib Dem seats are won on the basis of those voters being um, persuaded to uh cast their vote for the Lib Dems, and clearly if we go into any kind of pact, whether informal or formal, with the Conservatives, those voters are going to feel betrayed by us, and not wish to um, place their confidence in a a Lib Dem candidate, so I I can't see any form of um, uh, proper um, merger or um, informal alliance between Lib Dems and Conservatives being acceptable to uh, to either party, frankly, but certainly not to the Liberal Democrats.
0: The smaller parties, with the notable exception of the Greens' Caroline Lucas, failed to make an electoral breakthrough in 2010. What's in store for them in future? John Curtis.
2: Well, there is, I think one thing to say about 2010, and indeed again it's an important trend over recent elections, is that to some degree at least it's already the case that the three-party domination of um, people's um, electoral uh, sympathies has already been quite substantially cracked. Uh, we had just under 10% of the vote, just nearly one in ten votes cast in Great Britain in 2010, were cast for parties other than Conservative, Labour, and Liberal Democrat, and that is higher than it has been at any any previous um, uh, UK general election. So, to that degree, at least, one can already see a crack. Now, of course, we're already in a position, obviously, in terms of the devolved territories, both the Scottish National Party and Plaid Cymru uh... being involved in government in Scotland and in Wales, uh, respectively. But if you now look, for example, particularly, I mean, of course, 2010, the headline, so far as other parties are concerned, was claimed by the Greens, Caroline Lucas's success and the first Green MP to be elected. Actually, the Greens didn't make much of an advance in 2010 uh, more broadly, um, but still they are now part of the, uh, clearly part of the the furniture of British politics, and the fact that they could at least command the resources to concentrate in one particular constituency and manage to win it. Is a sign that indeed you know, they, they do now uh, command a section of electorates. But and you both the United Kingdom Independence Party and the British National Party made another significant advance in this election. UKIP did better than any previous minor party uh, in, uh, in in British politics in 2010. And to that degree, at least, you know, it's no longer the case that, for example, the Conservative Party can assume. That it, can, it doesn't have to worry about voters uh, to the right, because indeed the Conservative Party does seem to be losing voters to UKIP, and indeed the Labour Party does seem to have lost voters to the BNP at last election. So the parties no longer can not avoid that. What, however, I think is still clearly a long way away, is these parties being able to do sufficiently well that they can actually start picking up more than the odd MP as the Greens did. Um, in 2010. They're no longer simply just three players, but we are, seem to be moving towards some kind of era of multi politics.
1: So if that's the uh, future of political parties, what about the big political ideas that they're meant to represent, like the big society? What does this mean for the relationship between the state and its citizens? We spoke to doctor Madson Peary of the Free Market Adam Smith Institute.
6: Yes, I'm Dr. Perry, President of the Free Market Adam Smith Institute. Well, if as now appears likely we get the alternative vote, uh, many people are saying that it will make uh, coalitions more likely. Um, It it might well do that, but there's a rather more important difference it will make in that uh, second preferences and third preferences will count. And therefore, instead of just bidding for your vote, MPs in many constituencies will be bidding for your second preferences. And that means that elections might well be less antagonistic than they have been in the past.
0: Do you see a fundamental reshaping of the relationship between the British state and its citizens over the next decade?
6: I think a fundamental change in that relationship, the one between state and citizen, is is, is taking place and is is going to be intensified and will utterly have transformed by the year 2020. For example, we have tried in some instances to do things collectively through the public sector, British-style socialism. I, I think that has now been tested to destruction by the last government, The notion that all that public sector services lacked was was sufficient funding. Um, Massive amounts of money were poured in without really any commensurate improvement in in the quality of output. I mean, for example, social mobility seems to be wider now than it was, and uh, the the, uh, gap between rich and poor seems to have widened as well. So I rather think that um, there probably won't be any old-fashioned British-style socialism by the year 2020, and the debate might well have shifted to one between the libertarians and the conservatives, the, the ones who favor the right to experiment socially, to embrace new lifestyles, and the ones more concerned about preserving the fabric of society and the quality of life.
0: And can you see David Cameron's big society shifting the relationship from government responsibility to community responsibility? And can you see this relationship as sustainable?
6: I think part of the uh, the big society programme does reflect the shift away from um, central state planning uh, out to um, individuals and families and communities at a more local level. Yes, it it is part of what I see as a long-term transition away from dependence on the central apparatus of state and uh, outwards um, into more diffuse and multiple sources uh, within the community and society at large.
0: Do you think that it's possible for a grassroots conservative movement to emerge and influence parliamentary politics in the long term?
6: I don't think we're going to get a grassroots conservative movement in the political sense, but I think it might well happen that there will, it will be a kind of feeling, a disposition of people and that we might find there is a significant proportion of the population showing unease at the rate of progress and in an increasingly fast-moving modern technological world, um, perhaps a yearning for the um, quieter, um, what people would call more civilised values of of previous times. And that is, in all but name, conservatism.
0: Will any of the parties be able to carve out a coherent ideology over the next ten years? Maybe David Cameron's big society will be the big political idea of the 2010s. Or maybe the other parties can implement their own vision for a better Britain. And will parties be able to translate their ideas to a wider constituency than
3: their limited party bases? My name's John Croddis. I'm uh, MP for Dagenham and Raynham.
0: Do you think that Labour is taking any steps to map out a coherent ideology rivalling David Cameron's big society, for example?
3: No, I mean, this big society thing I think is very interesting. and I think we failed to really address it because what it is, it's offensively the Conservatives rediscovering the importance of fraternity and relationships in politics so they can then create a language which is more um, generous which is more thoughtful, which is more uh, relational, which is more compassionate, uh, which is kinder, gentler than the previous shrill, sour conservative language. Now unless we give full weight to what's happening and understand how that can become a very effective series of, if you want, um, uh, emotional tools in politics, we're not doing it due service. and in the meantime, if we just think that our solution is to, to sit on the right flank of the coalition by attacking welfare recipients and immigrants and the like, then we could be in a very, very bad position. We need the equivalent of, our, of a broken Britain or, you know, the big society. Uh, and we have not even got to the early foothills of that discussion yet.
0: What do you feel the fundamental points of disagreement are between Labour and Liberal Democrat voters, and are there reasons to expect a future reconciliation?
3: Well, there should be, if we are serious about this question of political change, because I think one of the tactics we've deployed today is simply hammering the Liberals. Um, Now, presumably, if we assume that coalitionary politics is here to stay, then at some stage we're going to have to acknowledge that the Liberals could be a prospective partner for Labour in a future coalition of political forces, a centre-left coalition. Therefore, it might not necessarily be in our interest to hammer on to, into the Liberals, and rather we should be developing relationship with Liberal voters, maybe Liberal members, prospective Labour members, who might happen to be uh, currently involved with the Liberal Democrats, so that we can build a bigger tent than the one we occupy at the moment. But I don't think, again, in the post-election environment, we're not really acknowledging any of this in terms of having a deeper, more nuanced consideration of where politics is at the moment. And uh, that's what we've got to get to. in the leadership election, quite rationally, actually, it hasn't really got into any of this because it's an internal exercise of um, pandering to different electoral elements within the Labour Party rather than a deeper analysis of social and economic change for the future.
0: And looking to the future, what role can community organising play in regaining the Labour Party's lost votes and building a wider social justice movement? Well, that's what it should be
3: doing. That's the, It could be the underpinning to precisely that, a, a new pluralist politics which is connected to Broader social movements. Labour Party at its best historically. If you can go right back to Keir Hardie, on this, they were always tapped into broader, more radical, progressive causes and social movements. For Keir Hardie, it was the suffragettes. It was his own internationalism. He actually worked with social liberals and not just people in Labour. Um, you know, he, he, his politics was plural and progressive. And we've got to rediscover that culture around us, which Labour at its best has had. Um, we don't have it at the moment. We seem like uh, we're not opening up to some of those movements. We're dismissing them and discounting their role. Um, we're not offering hope to a lot of Lib Dem voters at the moment. And uh, I think we've probably got the wrong take on what's going on with the coalition. So we're going to have to change. But we can do that because it's, it's hardwired into the best bits of Labour where it becomes part of broader coalitionary politics, which... You know, challenges the orthodoxies of the day. But the trouble for Labour is, at moments of crisis in its history, it's always retreated into orthodox, conservative positions rather than striking out in more progressive ways. And that's what it has to do now.
0: And finally, what do you hope the country and its politics will look like in a decade's time?
3: In a decade's time, a time I'd like, through the effect of things like radical, more community-based organising, it being localised, um, having dismantled some of the Whitehall armlock around the body politics, Um, it being built about a renaissance of local government, it being with the Labour Party's part and in tune with other broader social and political movements at local level in their own communities, which is both challenging but also radicalises the Labour Party, whereby Labour has rediscovered its sort of soul in terms of its reason for its very existence, in terms of economic and social change which is younger which is offering hope rather than despair because the key fault line in politics is between hope and despair and we need to rediscover that optimism that we've lost because we've genuflected in front of the focus group it must be more humane and tap into a positive sense of the human condition. Now all of that is possible but it might take us quite a while to get there. My name is Jonathan Nisby and I'm the co-editor of conservativehome.com
4: You know we should be making the state smaller, taking power away from the state, uh, removing powers altogether where they're not necessary, and devolving powers to a a lower level where possible. Uh, And clearly there are lots of areas where, you know, we should be having individual people and individual neighbourhoods and communities making decisions about their futures rather than having it all directed from on high in Whitehall. So I think that's a really, really important theme, and you know, I, I hope that it does catch on.
0: There seems to have been a degree of scepticism on the party's right and amongst sections of the grassroots when the big society was first outlined. Can you see a competing ideology being developed from the Tory right?
4: I don't think so, because I think the, most of the big society ideas is utterly in line with what the right of the party thinks. I say reducing the size of the state, giving more power to individuals is, is perfectly in tune uh, with what anyone on the right of the party would be thinking. I think there was a, a slight frustration, I suppose, during the election campaign when when big society suddenly became a theme during the election campaign it, it wasn't perhaps explained as well as it could have been and in fact the, the way it was explained by david cameron kind of with two weeks to go before polling day uh was very much kind of in the in the tone of an almost kind of philosophical lecture uh which really wasn't the right tone for an election campaign uh stump speech uh which which is what it was uh that's not to say that the, the principles underlying it uh, are wrong because they're not
0: can you see an influential conservative grassroots movement developing over the next decade, independent of the party's hierarchy?
4: Well, I would like to say that in a sense that Conservative Home has a readership well into the tens of thousands, that Conservative Home, in a sense, represents uh, a, a large number of conservatives, you know, at all levels, but in particular at the grassroots, who are able to use the site to get their voices heard and put their points of view across uh, in a way that, you know, they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Um, and obviously Conservative Home, the, the, the site which I go in, it is independent of the party. Uh, and I, I certainly think that, uh, you know, the, the, the Internet and the, the blogosphere has enabled all kinds of, you know, movements, to flourish and, uh, you know, perhaps people with sets of ideas which they don't have lots of corporate money to promote are able to get those ideas and points of view out there uh, in a very democratic way. The the Internet, you know, has virtually no barriers to entry. Anyone can, can get out there and, and put those views out there. Uh, and, 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 you know, if, if they attract interest and support, then all power to them.
0: And can you see efforts being made to reach out to conservatives who aren't supporters of the modern day Conservative Party? Maybe say coalescing around single issues like the Tea Party movement in the States.
4: And I think that, I mean, membership of all political parties has declined in in recent years. It, well, it's a trend over decades, if you like. Uh, but at the same time, you do get individual issues where people will sign up to a specific campaign and who I, I think people are people are far more consumer oriented about their politics these days if you like they you know they'll think you know oh well i you know disagree with the baton hunting so i'll support this petition or this campaign on that uh, at the same time i you know think that it's outrageous they're trying to close my local hospital so i'll join the local action committee on that Uh, and so on and so forth but at the same time you know you've got all kinds of different electoral systems for different levels of elections in this country uh and people will vote different ways for different kinds of elections which means that far fewer people are identifying themselves all the time with one particular party so in a sense the, the the whole phenomenon of single issue campaigns i think is is probably one that's here to stay uh, but at the same time, clearly we're still going to have political parties in existence uh, and they, uh, and people will continue to fight elections under under those banners. So, uh, you know, candidates and parties need to infuse uh, people uh, to support them and to, and to back them. Uh, but you may get a situation where you get more of these single-issue groups who then, at uh, particular elections, will alight on particular candidates they want to back and, and go out and support them.
0: And, finally, prediction for the 2020 general election.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not not even going to go there. I mean, so we don't even know what system the next election is going to be fought under, let alone the one after that. Um, But uh, suffice to say that I I very much hope that the the centre-right will still be able to be in a dominant position. Stephen Tall, co-editor of thedenvoice.org.
0: Can you see Britain becoming more liberal over the next decade? And can a dominant liberal political narrative emerge?
5: I think we're starting to see that happen. Um, I mean, it's, in, it's interesting with the coalition government, of course, that some of the more liberal measures um, are coming from the uh, uh, Conservative members. Now you can look at, for example, uh, Ken Clark uh, in the Justice Department, who is starting to push a far more uh, liberal line than has been apparent under successive Conservative and, indeed, Labour Home Secretaries. So I think we're, we we could potentially see a, a more compassionate form of government emerge. Of course, a lot's going to depend on whether or not the big society, David Cameron's famed phrase, uh, comes to mean anything in government. It's, uh, the big society was something that I think people have treated very sceptically and uh, understandably so. But it's interesting to know that Lib Dems have been far less keen to attack it because a lot of what it's ostensibly talking about Feeds into liberal um, views, which is that we want to see more voluntary activity, we want to see more mutualism within uh, the population, we want to see individuals given more power over their own lives rather than have it be decided for them, but whether by government uh, or by uh, quangos. And so that sense in which people have more control over the public services, that they have a real choice in the kind of uh, services that they get from the state, I think could make for a much more liberal Um, society in which people do feel that they have power to influence and shape their own lives. So, if the big society comes to mean something, whether in schools, in hospitals, uh, and uh, throughout public services, transport as well, you can start to see um, the narrative of a a liberal, small-l liberal, society being
0: formed. Following the coalition agreement, there must be a danger that oppositional votes will go elsewhere, as the Lib Dems may be considered as too mainstreamed. Are there any efforts being made to reach out to non lib Dem voters for future elections?
5: I think so, and we we certainly saw that uh, happen at the last election in particular. Um, There was the uh, famous Facebook group. Uh, We got Rage Against Machines, number one, we can get the Liberal Democrats into government, which uh, became an internet sensation. We got uh, 160,000 Facebook users signed up to it within the space of just two or three weeks. And lots of those people were people who hadn't previously considered... Party politics, certainly they may have been political in a, in a small p sense, but they certainly weren't um, involved in uh, party politics. I think I'd like to see uh, a lot more people involved in uh, their own running their own lives. At the moment, there is, and I think, this being partly the legacy of 13 years of Labour government, people have got used to the idea that the state will do things. Now, for the next five years, that's not going to be the case simply because the state can't afford um, to do lots of those things. It's just a financial reality that would be the case no matter which party was in government. I think the challenge then is to see that as a positive rather than as a negative and start thinking of the ways in which people actually get uh, control over their own lives so that it might be in the realm of council housing, it might be in the, the realm of uh, healthcare choice, um, all those kind of different issues which I think people um, would want to have more power, more control over um, over the kinds of services they get from government. Um, I think if we can get to a society where people feel that they actually have power, not just once every five years when they get to cast their vote, but every single day when they get to choose the uh, kind of public services that they're paying their taxes to provide, then I think that will be uh, a real measure of success for a liberal society.
1: So allegedly then, what we're going to see by 2020 is a renewal of parties, and a renewal of party ideologies. Does this mean that people are going to be doing politics in the same way? Or will there be new mechanisms for people to engage in this renewed politics? We spoke to David Babs from 38 Degrees about the way e-democracy might transform future engagements with politics.
7: I think the starting point for 38 Degrees is a recognition that there are hundreds of thousands of people in the UK who... Care about the issues, have progressive values. They want to see poverty tackled. They want the environment protected. They want to protect human rights. They want the UK to play a positive role in the world. But traditional ways of engaging in politics, and traditional political institutions, aren't working for them. And that's really different from apathy. Um, that's that's about. It, it's not about people being apathetic. It's about them not feeling that the ways that they, the options available to them, make a difference. And you know, we're offering a new ways of getting involved and we've seen 160,000 people get involved with 38 degrees in just one year so clearly there are lots of people who feel that. that. Now partly I think that does talk about changes to the voting system and um, one of the reasons that people feel that other ways of getting involved doesn't make a difference is because in so many places because of the way our voting system works um, their votes don't count and what I think online technology enables is it enables for, it enables people to engage in discussions that previously would have been po- possible within a community hall or a workplace workplace meeting room um, on a far bigger scale and that that means that a level of participation and a level of engagement that was very hard to achieve at the, at the nation state level is now possible so 38 degrees you know we, we genuinely are making decisions together 160,000 of us as to what we can what what we do and we we are finding that by by taking those decisions in such a participative way, we're, we're making better decisions. So over three thousand people helped write 38 degrees' plan for what it would, would do during the last general election, and it was a far better plan than if I'd written it locked in a room on my own. Um, and I do think that has that has quite transformative implications. It means you know, you more people can engage in decision making, and those decisions will be better as a result. That said, there are definitely risks to 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 engaging people exclusively online. Um, Not everyone has access to to the internet and not everyone wants to have access to the internet and we would certainly um, be be scrutinizing any government decisions which could lead to digital exclusion and exacerbate that. That said, um, when we look at the 160,000 people who got involved in 38 Degrees, they're a very diverse bunch. It's it's, it's not an elite activity Mm. to to be engaging in politics online. Um, 38 Degrees members live everywhere, they're all, all ages, they're, they're, they're from a, a wide variety of backgrounds and ethnicities, um, so I think it's very important to, to think about digital inclusion and think about other ways of engaging, but not, not to write off online as an, as a, as a, as an elite ac- activity at, at all. Um, most people are online and a proportion of all areas of their life takes place online, including, including their political participation and political identity.
0: Here's Peter Tatchell on the role of direct action in holding politicians to
8: account. Peter Tatchell, human rights campaigner. If we look back in history, we can see that all throughout the decades and the centuries, direct action has played a very important vital role in challenging injustice and in particular in helping to put political issues, reform issues, on the agenda. We saw this with the Chartists and the Suffragettes. We saw it with the campaign against the poll tax. In all these cases and many others, there were parliamentary debates, but often they got nowhere. But it was when people organised and took direct action that suddenly the issue became you know, mainstream, major and unavoidable for those in power. So I think in the next ten years, we're going to see a continuation of the relevance of direct action to hold the government to account, to push forward for new reforms and new agendas, particularly around uh, climate chaos and the need to switch our economy to a more green, sustainable one. And also, of course, particularly towards reforming the economic system to ensure there is greater democratic participation and accountability in economic decision making so that big corporations and banks do not have the untrammeled power that they currently enjoy and which of course in recent years has brought us to such a state of dangerous economic meltdown.
0: Can you identify any individual direct action groups that you
8: think will prove to be influential? I think it's very hard to you know, project into the future but I think you know a lot of the animal rights and um, climate change activist groups have been among the most active in recent years and have achieved some of the greatest successes.
0: And for the future of human rights and equality in the UK, what do you
8: see the big barriers being? When the coalition government came to power, they made a great promise about rolling back Labour's attacks on civil liberties. You know, They talked about a new freedom bill that would reinstate fundamental rights and freedoms and remove state interference from large areas of our lives. Um, again, you know, there are some areas where this is being done, but a lot of it is about, you know, abolishing various quangos, some of which probably should go, but others possibly not, like the Agricultural Wages Council. I'm not too sure that's a good idea to get rid of that. Um, and I think when it when you come to the big issues, the real test is going to be over, you know, detention without charge, um, you know, control orders, all, all those kind of issues. Those are the really tough issues and the real litmus test of the government's sincerity and commitment to civil liberties. On equality and human rights, um, you know, there are lots of issues. One of the issues I'm very much involved with is the case to end the ban on gay marriage. Um, Under the current law, lesbian and gay couples are banned from getting married in a civil ceremony in a registry office. Uh, Equally, heterosexual couples are banned from having a civil partnership. I think both discriminations are wrong. I think a straight couple ought to be able to have a civil partnership if they wish. I think a gay couple ought to be able to have a civil marriage if they wish. You know, we should give that choice. But both systems, civil marriages and civil partnerships, should be open equally to everyone without discrimination. Uh, I've just met with the Home Office Minister, Lynn Featherston, and I've been very, very disappointed that despite her Liberal Democrat Party's policy of equality, she's not pushing for uh, equality for uh, civil marriages and civil partnerships. All they're talking about at the moment is uh, ending the restrictions on religious ceremonies uh, for civil partnerships. And that's, that, 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 that's welcome, but it's, it's tinkering. You know, the real issue is same-sex marriage and opposite-sex civil partnerships. Those equalities have got to be implemented by any government that's genuine and sincere about human rights. And right now, this government isn't, even though 61% of the British public believe that civil marriages should be open to lesbian and gay couples. 61%, that's nearly two-thirds of the public, are in favour of marriage equality. Yet the coalition government, and indeed the Labour opposition, are against equal marriage rights. There's something seriously wrong with the major parties when they stand against equality.
0: And finally, Peter, Do you see any hope for creating a broad-based movement for social change outside parliamentary politics?
8: I always live in the hope that we can build a civic society movement, a grassroots movement, which can bring together different communities and different campaigns, uh, working together in solidarity, supporting each other, and building towards some, you know, big, momentous social change, which we can all benefit from. That's my hope. But I've got to say that I am, like many others, constantly disappointed that this hasn't happened, and I'm not too sure it's going to happen. You know, you know, I'd love to tell you that, yes, we're going to see, you know, an extra parliamentary direct action protest movement which will bring in hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people and we will get the government to change its policy like we did get Margaret Thatcher to drop the poll tax, but I'm sadly not convinced that's going to happen. I'm afraid there is too much sectionalism and factionalism, people fighting their own corner and not seeing the bigger picture, not recognizing that you know, attacks on Muslims or Jews or gays or blacks or whatever, that these are all part of the same pattern, the same, you know, if you like, uh, pattern of hatred and, and prejudice and discrimination, and that if we not only fight our own corner but work with others to fight our common corner, then we're going to be much stronger. You know, as the old adage goes, unity is strength. United we stand, divided we fall. Are there reasons to be optimistic about our politics
0: over the next decade? Well, no and yes. The last ten years have seen an ebbing away of political support for our mainstream parties and an erosion in the trust in our democracy altogether. Little is emerging ideologically from inside the parties. Extra-parliamentary activity has become largely protectionist, refusing to look to a broad base for support. But there are signs that giving the public more of a say around policy-making is on the agenda both within parties and external campaign organisations there is widespread public support for effective social justice measures. All we need to do is find a way of implementing them, ensuring that politicians know we can withhold our support at election time if they refuse to prioritise them.
1: I, for one, however, still remain unconvinced by this project. I think the aspirations are incredibly laudable and lovely, but I don't think political parties can get us there. Achieving such a mammoth change would require a massive reshaping of the political sphere, and for, I guess, political parties to transcend current power dynamics. I'm just not sure that in a place uh, where over the next decade they're going to be the best or even a feasible vehicle to achieve this. But does this mean that something new and youthful will emerge in its place? Fetishising youth, as I love to do, the final say about the future of big political ideas goes to Laura Penny, a feminist writer for The New Statesman.
9: Well, I think there's a great hunger for big political ideas, particularly among young people, because there's a sense that, particularly after, you know, what Francis Fukuyama calls the end of history in 1989, um, the, big, the big ideas kind of drained away. And I think there's a whole generation that's grown up without big overarching narratives like left versus right, capitalism versus socialism, and the sense that neoliberalism is one. And now kind of after the recession, people are just starting to question that again. So I think there's definitely a place for big political ideas again. I mean, I've met young people on demonstrations and at events recently where they've said, oh, no, I've had a socialist awakening. I've started reading Marx, which I think is fantastic. You know, there are loads of people just discovering Marx and Engels and early feminist thinkers for the first time, which I think is fantastically, um, fantastically hopeful.
0: So but you believe that there's a, a reason to be optimistic about the next generation of politically active young people?
9: Well, yes and no. I think um, that young um, people—by which I mean people sixteen and over, people who are young adults—are desperately hungry for to be politically involved. But at the same time, we've grown up with a big kind of impression that we need to be compliant and good and well behaved in order to get a job. And I think the only way there'll be definite hope for energy and engagement is if we learn. That it's not okay just to do what our adults, what adults tell us is good politics, and that politics is more than just you know joining an MP's campaign team or working in Parliament and opening letters or interning. You know, politics is something you do and something you really, really think about, and sometimes it involves resisting the system as well as joining it. And that's why I think things like Climate Camp are really positive, and um, things like the local feminist activist groups in London. Um, and that's where I think the real hope lies for the future.
0: Well, that was it this week. Thanks to all our guests. You remember them. They're the ones you heard. Uh, what's happening next week, Rhys? Uh,
1: we're looking at inequality in the welfare state with some amazing people to share their thoughts, I guess, and ideas about whether we're going to become um, ravishingly poor as a country or perhaps whether we'll become a bit more equal.
0: Fan This is John Fox. Too late.
1: What was thumbered at
0: Fan it's what the crankies no used idea. to say. I
1: have no idea. fine. Anyway, this is still junk box. <laughs>